Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Adopted children tend to focus on why was why wasn't I loved? Why wasn't I kept? That is the big thing for them. That that is the the source of all of those abandonment issues and so on and so forth. So I told her a story from day one about how daddy and I were looking for our perfect baby. We couldn't find her. And we looked all over the world and we asked all of these really smart people for help to find our perfect baby. And they looked in Africa and they looked in, in India and they looked, we made up this whole crazy big story. And then one day we got a phone call and they said, we found your perfect baby. And we said, oh my God, finally, where is she? She's in China. Okay. And then I make up this crazy thing about all the things we packed in our suitcase. We did this for our perfect baby. We did that for our perfect baby. We did this. And we went to China and then blah, 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 blah. And then they gave us two and we said, oh my God, there she is, our perfect baby. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Leslie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, I've been waiting for this one. This one was like had a little red star next to it. And I was like, this one's going to be good. It's going to be good. Oh, I am so excited to talk to you. I absolutely loved your book. I remember when Jeffrey told me that you had a book called Swagger. I thought, yeah, this is somebody that I want to talk to. And then <laughs> I sat down and I read the whole thing in, in two days because it was so good. But before we get into the book, uh, I want to start with a question that I think is really fitting given the nature of your subject matter. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Wow. Okay. I didn't really fit into any one group. I was kind of cliqueless. I was able to, to fluidly move between different groups. Um, I, I also didn't stay in one school for really long periods of time. So I just kind of found the quirky, amazing individuals that I loved and then hung with them as it suited me. I, I've always been that independent thinker because I could hang with the smart kids because I'm super smart. I could hang with the cool kids because I get it. Uh, I couldn't really hang with the jocks cause I didn't get that, but <laughs> I just, but, but then I, you know, I also went to, uh, to an unusual high school, 
um, for my last two years of high school, I went to a, a, an experimental high school called Mind that was for smart kids. And, and everybody there were freaks uh, in the best way possible. So I, there was a lot of, a lot of fluidity in my life. You know, we, we moved in those key years in, in high school before I went to, to Mind. We moved out of Montreal proper into this really small French Canadian, uh, town called Saint-Azar. And so I went to the only high school that was there, which was this, you know, high school <laughs> that everybody from every, you know, surrounding region came to. And I swear to you three, I was known as La Juif. I was the Jew because it was such a novelty. <laughs> there were we the only Jews in the entire community and there was no shade to La Juif. But I actually, I was La Petite Juif, the little Jew. My sister was La Grand Juif. That's how we were referred to. So I had a very weird and wild, you know, upbringing. It wasn't traditional. I was a wild child, big time. Mm. Well, okay. So the the funny thing is we have not just the moving around in common, but we also have having lived in Canada in common. I spent four years in Edmonton. Uh, and I wonder, moving around so much, how has that affected your uh, social relationships in your adult life? Because one of the things that has been really awkward to me or, or odd is that my sister has friends that she's known since she was in sixth grade. Some of them were bridesmaids at her wedding. They come to our house for Christmas. My closest friends are people that I've met in probably the last 10 to 15 years. And you know, I'm 43 now because of the fact that we moved around so much. So I wonder, in your adult life, uh, what has been the impact of all that moving around? It has made me absolutely fearless when it comes to forming relationships because I know that I can. I've had the proof. I moved to the UK when I was 19. I packed my bags, moved to the UK, didn't know a soul, and lived there for 17 years. So I am really fearless when it comes to forming new communities and, and joining new communities. And I love that. I To me, change is exciting. So I can make friends anywhere, and I love making friends anywhere. So my, my friends, my friendships have, you know, I still have some friends from back in the day, like from summer camp and I have, you know, brand new friendships and I have people all over the world who I'm still deeply connected to. So that's another thing I think too, is that proximity doesn't matter to me. Connection is connection. And so I have people that I consider to me my dearest and closest friends who live all over the world who I see, you know, once every three years or four years or something. Yeah, yeah. I think that the, that's one of the the beautiful things about having moved so much. It does really make you a citizen of the world, and I, I kind of feel the same way. Like I feel like I can go into any country, and it, at this point, I feel like I could pretty much go anywhere on the planet, and I could find somebody I know or somebody who listens to this yeah. podcast yeah. who I can hang out with. <laughs> yeah. If not, I'll, I'll make friends with them in two seconds, and who cares? You know, yeah, they'll be like yeah. we've known each other forever. Yeah. Well, so I have to ask about the school as somebody who is constantly obsessing over how we, you know, um, transform education. What was this school like? You know, is it, you said it was sort of like a school for freaks and geeks. And I, I, I wasn't going to let you off the hook on that. I want to know more. Well, it was an experimental school and it, it, it followed the, the traditional curriculum. Like we still had to take the, the traditional, you know, exams, but it allowed you to work at your level, not your grade or your age. So, um, for example, I was so off the charts when it came to languages and Englishes. The only people in my English class were me and my teacher. That was it. We used to just hang out. We used to go. This is back in the day, right? It's back in the day. And we used to go to the coffee shop down the street because my, my high school was downtown Montreal. And we used to smoke cigarettes and drink espresso <laughs> and discuss literature. It was crazy. And I was completely backwards when it came to math. And I really had zero aptitude. And they had to drag me 
through, I think I, I think I finally graduated maybe grade nine math in order to be able to graduate. Maybe it was grade 10, but I mean, they spoon fed me this. And, and I was in, I was in the class with kids who were three years younger than me. And, and no, we didn't care. You know, that was just not the way that it was. We all, you know, we, we would have, um, twice yearly, we would have what they called group project and we, we would sign up for some crazy radical thing. So it might be winter camping or learning a martial art or volunteering in the community or whatever. And then we would do that thing for a week to 10 days and we would be graded on that in terms of, you know, our civic responsibility and our ability to collaborate and our, our problem solving approaches and everything. And we would get graded on those experiences just as, as stringently as we would for our academics. So we hired and fired the teachers. We made decisions Amazing. about whether, whether we liked a teacher. We called our teachers by their first name. We had a smoking lounge in my school and we used to sit around listening to like, you know, the doors and, and, you know, the sex pistols. Um, and it was, it was really incredibly unique. And for someone like me, it was everything that I wanted because I have real problems with with traditional authority and I could not be tamed. Um, I really had not, you had to earn my respect. Respect wasn't something that came out of hierarchy or power or, or status. It was, if I don't think that you're a good human, you're not going to get anything from me. And I will judge you based on that. It did, that didn't go well in the traditional high school. <laughs> Can you imagine, right? Can you imagine like, and, and, uh, and my parents respected that because I'm a good human. You know, I'm not, I was never a bad kid, but I was a rule breaker rebel. I didn't take shit from anybody and I wasn't having it, you know, and, and they never worried about whether I would, I would be okay in the world, but they did worry about whether I would, I would be able to get the kind of credentials to go out and, and do my thing in the world. Yeah. Well, you're talking to the guy who told the dean at his business school that she should fire everybody in the career center, divide their salaries by the number of students and issue all of us a refund so that we could hire our own <laughs> yes, recruiters. Yes, baby. Yes. So, yeah. And I, when one of my friends said, you really didn't go easy on her. I said, dude, I'm like, she may think the president of the university is her boss. My tuition dollars pay her salary. So she yep. answers to me. She, yeah, she works for me. Concerned. Yeah, I know. That's that's the thing is when you when you un, unburden yourself of of the um of the nod to any kind of perceived power you see the world completely different you're like hey wait a second you're you're not you don't have any power over me you don't control me you don't get to have influence over me i decide that i was also someone who was immune to peer pressure you couldn't get me like I just was i'd look at you and laugh i'm like yeah whatever do you boo i'm going to do me you know that was my approach to things but i was i was wild like i started my first band when i was 16 i moved out of the house when i was 17 you know when i was 14 so this is uh, i was born in 64 i'm old please everyone do the math so uh when i was when i was um 14 I had like a mohawk. I'd shaved sides of my head, purple. People used to cross the street to, um, to avoid me because you didn't see people like that in, in particular in Canada, but certainly, you know, in North America at the very least. So I, I didn't follow rules at all, you know, but I've always been all about love. I'm like the, the yeah. biggest marshmallow on the planet, but I look mm. like a badass. Do you have kids? I do. I have, I have okay. two amazing, amazing kids that are both adopted from China. Um, cause, uh, that was something that I was, I wanted to do like with every ounce of my souls. I wanted to adopt girls from China. So that's what I did. I have two gorgeous, amazing daughters, 19 and 12. Okay. You should celebrate yourself every day. 
But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So numerous questions come from that alone. The reason I ask um, is because you know you mentioned how you were educated, and I wonder one how that has influenced the way that you are choosing to educate your kids, and then two, um, which I realize is a big question, and that says if you were put in charge of reforming the education system based on the experience you had, how would you do it? Oh my God! How many? How much time do we have? I just I'm thinking posted, we might have to do this in two parts. Oh, based I swear on to God, how because much you have in the book. I um I just posted this something about this on LinkedIn like two days ago, 
and I did a little poll. You know, you, you, you don't have enough choices in, on LinkedIn polls, but I said, you know, what do you think is missing from the education system? I have so many views on this. And I, you know, as someone who, uh, who also is a, a, a huge, um, student of, of, of creativity and creative process, it's one of the, one of the things that, that allowed me to travel the world is treat training creative problem solving. But, you know, my own radical version of creative problem solving that's very much intertwined with swagger, um, is I think that, that, you know, critical and creative problem solving are, absolute keys to adult success. And I think that it is, you know, it is, it blows my mind that we are not teaching kids how to be problem solvers, because once you teach them critical and creative problem solving, so many of the other things you are trying to teach them will come naturally because they will seek it out, you know, as, as, as the, the ways to fill um, to fill the gaps in their knowledge, they're going to become so hungry for it. The why, the root cause, the what's the real problem here becomes the driver for so much curiosity and so much, um, and so much power. I think that, that, um, we need to be, uh, to be taught the concepts of leadership. What does that mean? How do you, how do you lead from the side and not just the front? Um, I think that we need to teach, um, kids about, what uh what it means to truly um embrace diversity and diversity of thought um the, so inclusion on a whole different level um i think that we need to allow kids to to find their own tracks of learning much 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 earlier in the process i think that understanding the basics of numeracy and the basics of of reading I think once we get that in place, then it should be okay. What turns you on? Let's go on this track now. Is it art? Is it science? Is it, you know, is it, what is it? And then let's play with that and let's go much deeper. So I think it should be much more like a university curriculum where you get Mm -hmm. the options to play. Cause what I, what I taught my, my kid was I said, babes, as it is now, school is a game. Those who graduate win the game. You got to learn how to play the game. Don't worry about what you learn. Worry about playing the game. Figure out what your teachers want for you, from you, and give it to them. And along the way, you're going to find things that turn you on. You might not. You might, it might come later. But what I, what I don't want you to to happen is for you to have, develop a hate on for learning. So just Mm -hmm. kind of put it on hold and let life teach you right now, play the game, learn the social game, learn how to outsmart people, learn all of that, all of that, those critical life skills. And once you're out of, of high school, hopefully you won't have a hate on for learning. And then when you go to university, if that's what you choose to do, then you can really start to play, you know, you can really start to get stuck in, stuck in. And that's what she did. She treated it as a, you know, as a game. And I was her, I was like her wingman in, in navigating that game. And she came away from high school. She started off really rough. She was doing a lot of experimenting, a lot of challenges and stuff, which again, I got respect for. I got to support her in that. I was the exact same. Um, but she figured, she figured herself out and she left school with like the high nineties. And then she got into McGill. She did her first year at McGill during the pandemic. I was like, there you go, girl, do it. And now she's studying psychology. So wow. you, I just, I just do not really put any credence into high school education. I think it's bullshit. And I, I just, I've thrown up my hands in terms of, you know, what's important. And what's fascinating too is my 12 year old has all kinds of quite severe learning challenges. She is, um, 
she's one of those orphanage babies who had a really, really rough start. And as a result, she has these ongoing challenges. Um, <clears throat> when we talk, when you and I were talking about ADHD, we, we don't, we know nothing about what real ADHD is. Let me tell you, because when I, when a child has severe, severe, severe clinical ADHD, um, the, the level of like the real level of attention is seconds and wow. they cannot, it, it, they cannot hold on to the, the receiving of information long enough for it's, for the brain to distribute it. So it swirls around in their head and then it just falls out. It's, it's a, it's a really heartbreaking thing to watch. It's incredibly frustrating for the child. Plus she has cognitive challenges. She has short term memory issues. She's a, oh, and you would love this reading. She's a hundred percent concrete thinker. She is not capable of abstract thought. Now I want mm. you to imagine someone like you and me raising a child <laughs> who is not capable of abstract thinking. So. If you, you can't use euphemisms, you can't use analogies or metaphors because she takes it literally. So they're utterly useless and you have to be so specific with your language. And, uh, it is incredibly challenging. Now put that kid in any kind of traditional school system and she's screwed. So we have just peeled it back. She's in an amazing school who have allowed us to completely control her curriculum. And basically it's like, what what she's doing now is basic numeracy, making sure that she can read, which she's still incredibly challenged at, and the rest of it is life skills. That's all we care about mm. is life skills. I don't I don't give a shit about anything because fuck fuck you with your biology or your science or your whatever. She loves art. She does art. The rest of it, I don't care as long as she can read and understands the the practical application of numeracy. That's all I care about. Practical application. Could she make change? Can yeah. she? You know understand um, how to use measurements to cook, that those kinds of things, and life skills. That's it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Well, it makes so much sense now, you know, why I thought I, what I did about your book, you know, you know, as I alluded to before we hit record, you took something that so many people talk about in a way that's super abstract and you made it really concrete, which is why I loved it. Um, but before we do that, before we, we start digging into that, there's one more question. Like I said, if we have to do this in two parts, we will, because yeah, I think go, there's baby, go. way too much for us to cover it in one hour. Um, there, you know, you mentioned that you had adopted daughters from China. So one of the things I, I, I mean, numerous questions come from that alone. Uh, the first is, you know, what is the bonding experience like or the bonding process um, with an adopted child? And, and, you know, how does it differ, you know, do you think from somebody who has a biological child to with them having been born in China? How much, uh, you know, of that culture do you retain? How do you retain it? And then, you know, how do you preserve the identity from that culture? And while simultaneously integrating it with the fact that they're your kids who uh, are oof. basically French Canadian. Okay, big, big questions. So the first part is I cannot speak to the experience of making babies with my body. So I I don't have that point of comparison, but I can I can tell you this. If if there is more love to be had for a child than I have for my children, no thank you, because my fucking head would explode. Like I could, you know what I mean? Like, no, thank you. I'm good. I'm good with the amount of love that I have for my kids because basically I would peel my own skin off for my children. So there's that. Okay. Um, the bonding experience is pretty amazing because think of it this way. One of the, the reasons that, um, that, that women go through so many hormonal challenges during pregnancy is to seduce them into the acceptance of this little being, right? All of the hormones that are released during, during birth are, are all of those connection hormones, which is why, you know, when, when women don't have that, those hormones being released, they experience postnatal depression. Right. They don't have that natural connective thing and they feel really lost. And then the, their chemical imbalance is all out of whack and, and so on and so forth. Right. They don't experience that. Um, when you adopt children, you're kind of slammed into the experience. You wait for a very long time. So you have all of this anticipation, which is so unnatural. If you told a pregnant woman, she would have to, you know, gestation is going to last a lot longer. Like, let's go for three years. 
they would they would kill someone. You know, it is too long to wait for a baby. But that's the, what the, what you commit to when you're when you're adopting children internationally, and particularly. So, uh, so it's a much longer anticipation. But then when the when the the anticipation ends, you get a phone call and you say, "Okay, you got two weeks." You got to be in China. They're like, well, what the f-? Okay. And you only then find out the age of this child. Um, you know, we knew we wanted a girl, so we knew what the gender was going to be. And it's the first time that you see a picture of this child. So it's going to be, you know, a child who's probably somewhere anywhere between five months old and a year old at that, at that point. That's pretty traditional for, for Chinese adoption. So. There you are, you know, you, you got the picture of the kid. You got to name this kid because you got to do the paperwork on, on the child to bring them back into Canada. So you got to name them. You've never even met them. And you are now going to get a fully formed little human who had, a, who had a mysterious, uh, life up to that point for which you have no medical history whatsoever. And they're going to put that little human in your arms. I, I want to tell you that if you are someone who has the capacity, I'm, I'm going to cry while I'm talking about this. It's funny because I don't, I don't talk about this so much anymore. But if you are someone who has the capacity for love, like, like I do, um, and the, 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 the biological process was for me inconsequential. You know, I was like, wait, wait, there are babies in the world who need mothers. Well, fuck, I'm not going to make more babies. I'm going to go get the babies that need mothers. Why, it's, why would I go make more babies? That's a vanity. It's so selfish, you know? It's parenting is about raising children. It's not about making children, you know? So you take someone like me and, and that, that, with that recipe, from the second that they say, this is your child and here's a picture, you want to rip the throat out of anyone who is standing in the way of you and your child. And you think if anything happens to my child between now and when I can hold her, someone is going to die. You know, like it is the, the, the amount of ferocity, the protective, you know, nature and that, that thing that happened even before I met my daughters. It was, I'm like, I'm totally crying. It was unbelievable. And then when they handed them to me, Oh my God, you would have to have like pulled them out of my cold, dead hands. So, uh, we bonded from second one. Neither of them were particularly easy for their own reasons. No child is easy. You know, every, every kid has their own stuff. You have to learn them. Um, they're just more formed and you don't know what's happened to them. And in the case of my younger daughter, bad things happened to her. She was pretty much left in the dark on her back for five months. So, um, in terms of her development, it was completely unnatural. And I had to decode her. I had to figure out what, cause they don't tell you that. But when you discover that the back of your child's head is completely flat as a result of being left on her back and her legs are splayed like a frog and she can't bring them together because of the weight of her knees from being left on her back, you start to unravel the mystery and go, okay, what are we going to do for this child from day one to try and, and, you know, regain some ground? And, and there was ground that we could never regain. Whereas my elder daughter, was already a year old when I got her and she was a fiercely independent little thing. She was like, uh, 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 you people can love on me, but I will decide just how much I need from you. She was not a cuddler. She was not a snuggler. <laughs> she was not a, you know, whatever, but she kind of allowed us to parent her, but it took her a lot of years before she could accept just how much she was loved by us. It was really fascinating, but you do this, you know, because it is, it is an important thing to do for all of you, for all of you. You know, and uh, and so that that is 
you know, my spiel about, about bonding and so on. In terms of culture, I've always been incredibly torn because they are biologically Chinese. They, they are um, like, they are ethnically Chinese, but culturally they're kind of Jewish Canadian because that's the environment that they grew up in. And so what I was very conscious of is the pull of making them feel even more like other, like the other. And, you know, when, when they were little and we, you know, we'd spend a lot of time with social workers when you go through the, the adoption process and a lot of talk about, about, um, you know, celebrating their culture and integrating it and so on and so forth. And, you know, my older daughter was in Mandarin class initially and, and we took a little bit of Mandarin. But my, I turned to my husband one day who's, I'm Jewish and he's like white bread, you know? And, and I said, okay, so they're going to learn how to speak Mandarin or she's going to learn, what the fuck is she going to talk to? You know, it's not like, it's like now there is, there's even more otherness about her. And, and what she is getting used to is the Jewish holidays and her Bubby and her Zadie and her cousins and blah, blah, blah. And I want her to feel a sameness. You know, an acceptance, a part of a family and a community, as opposed to a reinforcement of, but you're different, you're other. So what we did was we, we always played in Chinese culture. You know, we always embraced that. We always celebrated Chinese New Year. We always, you know, spent a lot of time in Chinatown and we, you know, we, we found friends, you know, in the Asian community so that our kids could, could have those kind of relationships and see themselves reflected in, in their eyes. But we didn't go deep into Chinese culture because I think you, it's really hard to do that. It's really yeah. hard to do that. They, it's kind of like they, they have to accept it as part of themselves and not be afraid of it, but decide what pull it has for them. And I think that's going to come later in their lives. You know, I just didn't want them to have a hate on for it and for it to make them feel even more different than, than, you know, than they do as children of, you know, internationally adopted children. Cause think about, about this. When you're, if you're an adopted child, there's no assumption that you're adopted. You walk around with your parents and nobody goes, wow, that kid really looks different than their parents. They don't notice it. But when you're, but when you're internationally adopted, everywhere you go with your family, people go, ooh, look, adopted child. It's a burden. It's really hard on them. And you have to be really conscious of what that, what that must feel like for them. And how do you make them feel the least other than you possibly can? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, my sort of natural follow up to that is, is how old were they when you told them that they were adopted? Because, you know, oh, day one a, from forever, oh, forever. I had a so story. Always, known. always, okay. always known. I mean, they're Chinese. We're white, you know, like, and there's not, you know, <laughs> it's not like it's a, it's a big secret. But what I, what I did was I, um, I, from day one with my, my little one, I had a story that I told her about what happened, you know, and, and I think, I think what's important is, um, you know, adopted children tend to, to, um, I mean, I, I, they tend to focus on why was, why wasn't I loved? Why wasn't I kept? You know, that, that is the big thing for them. That, that is the, the source of all of those abandonment issues and so on and so forth. So I told her a story from day one about how, Daddy and I were looking for our perfect baby. We couldn't find her. And we looked all over the world and we asked all of these really smart people for help for to find our perfect baby. And they looked in Africa and they looked in, you know, in India and they looked, we made up this whole crazy big story. And then one day we got a phone call and they said, 
we found your perfect baby. And we said, oh my God, finally, where is she? She's in China. Okay. And then I make up this crazy thing about all the things we packed in our suitcase. We did this for our perfect baby. We did that for our perfect baby. We did this. And we went to China and then blah, 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 blah. And then they gave us to you and we said, oh my God, there she is, our perfect baby. You know, that's the thing. And I never, and I don't know how other people would feel about this. And I don't know if, if I would get a hate on for this or, or, you know, or, or not, but I never referred to my, my daughter's biological parents as her mother, biological mother or, or her biological father. I refer to her biological mother as the lady who made you Um, because I want them to know that I am their mother. Because a mother, a mother in the, tr- like in the, in the parenting sense is not someone you ever want to think can leave you. That's like the opposite of what abandonment is. So I, I never wanted them to have that sense in their head that a mother could leave you because I am their mother and I would never leave them. So mm-hmm. I, I made that, that distinction as well. Yeah. Well, so, you know, uh, naturally that raises another follow-up question. I had a, a really good friend who, when we were studying abroad in Brazil, he, he was from Denmark, he was Danish, but he was adopted by Danish parents uh, to, you know, Col- from Colombia. And he actually started looking for his birth mother and because he just happened to be in South America. And I remember asking him about the experience. He said, you know, it's sketchy because he said, one, it's Colombia. We have no idea what the hell we're getting ourselves into. He said, the other thing is, for all I know, I could discover that she's a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it was really just this like, you know, like web of intricate emotions. And I wonder, have your daughters ever asked about their biological parents? Like, have they been curious about finding out who they are or where they are or anything like that? Yeah, well, my my, my 19-year-old for sure, she talked more about, she kind of lamented the fact that she she didn't know what her biological mother looked like. You know, she couldn't look into that mirror of, of family to see, well, what are, you know, what are the the things that I got from my biological mother and, you know, and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and also not knowing her medical history, that's been, she's found that to be challenging. Like, I don't know if, if I'm prone to this or if that could be an issue or whatever. She hasn't really talked so much about, about, um, you know, like, wanted to know if she had siblings or any of that kind of stuff. And she's talked a little bit about, about she's curious, but she doesn't seem to be driven. And we said to her, look, with the almost zero information that, that we have, you say the word and we'll go, we'll, we'll do whatever, yeah. everything we can to go and try and find it. That's what you want to do. I'm so down for it. She doesn't seem to have that yet. Mm. And she may never, um, but she knows that we would support it a thousand percent. Like we are, tight, you know, we're, we're a tight little, little unit. And she knows that whatever she wants to do in this world, I have her back no matter what it is. Um, so there's that my little one, it's, it's a much more difficult concept for her to grasp. Um, so she likes to tell people that she's born, born, born from China, as she puts it, I'm born from China. (laughs) And when she meets people, um, of Asian, you know, of Asian descent, she'll say, where were you? I'm born from China. Where were you born? And then they'll say, you know, maybe it might be China, it might be Korea, it might be whatever. And she's very, very interested in you. So where were you born from? Were you born from China? Where in China? And do you go to China? Um, but she's never so far expressed the the desire to go there. And again, um, except that I, I got to admit that, that, you know, for her, my, my little one, I, I want to kill the people from that orphanage for what they did to her. 
Like I want to kill them. I want, I want to kill them for the level of neglect that they inflicted upon her. Um, so I am much more like, you know, just don't even look at my baby. <laughs> don't even look at my child because I'm mad at them. I am mad at them. My, my other daughter's orphanage was fantastic. It was amazing. But my little one got a really, really rough start. Mm. So one thing I wonder is, you know, when you have adopted kids, particularly when you adopt them that young, you know, it's like certain things, you know, if you have biological parents, you inherit certain personality traits, you know, like I, I realize I'm a lot like my dad and there mm -hmm. are certain things I definitely get from my mom. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, you know, there are probably not things that get passed on genetically, but what have you noticed that that has been passed on to them as just a byproduct of the environment, the byproduct of the fact that you're their mother? Oh, uh, dude. Versus something oh, that dude. they would carry on genetically. You know, nurture kicks the shit out of nature. It kicks the shit out of it. My daughter and I are so much alike in so many ways. My, my mother used to laugh and she said, even when I watch the two of you walk from behind, you even walk the same way. You know, we also have all kinds of weird similarities in terms of like weird things like we, we both have incredibly flat feet. We both suffer from eczema. We both, um, got shingles at a really young age, which is unheard of. We both like all of these weird things. And she's like, why do I have all of the crazy stuff that you have? Like you've got crazy stuff and why do I have it? She is all attitude. She is all spice and, you know, in your face and, and has an incredibly strong, you know, creative, um, streak in her. She's super musical. She's all of these things, which are so me. She's a, my daughter is a badass. She doesn't, she is like, Oh my God. And I have been told so many times, Oh my God, your daughter is so much like you. And she is in some ways and not in many other ways. You know, she's, she's her own person and she has a lot of stuff that, that is very dissimilar to me, but Boy, oh boy, you can tell we are from the same, from the same family for shizzle, you know? And my, my little one is her own, it's her own person. I think she is much more the product of how safe, uh, how safely loved she feels. So, um, she suffers from anxiety. She suffers from, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, and, if she didn't, if she did not understand just how fiercely she was loved, she would have a hard time functioning in this world. So I'm just so glad that we were the ones to get her. She's her own little little beast. With a, what she's sassy though, for sure. She's got, she got the sass. We call them M women. <laughs> they are M women through and through with the sass and the attitude. Ah, I love it. Uh, one thing about the little one, which I think would will actually make a perfect segue into talking about swagger. So, you know, I don't have severe ADHD, not the kind that your daughter apparently has. But one of the patterns I've noticed, and, and you know, you come across this in books often, you know, it's the CEOs of companies who are either dyslexic, have ADHD. So for some reason, whatever, you know, weakness they have, they can basically channel that and compensate for it with these sort of extraordinary strengths. Yeah, like one well, thing I saw yeah, you was develop that the superpowers. I can do more in a couple of hours if I'm interested in something than most people can get done in a week. When my editor at Penguin said, can you finish writing this manuscript in six months? I said, yes, which mm -hmm. like, looking back, that wasn't very smart, but um, yeah, but I did it. And yeah. I realized it was because I gave a damn. Whereas if you put me in an office job and said, you know, can you finish this in a week? I'd be like, well, I can finish it in an hour and then you should let me go home. And that's probably why you're going to fire me. Um, so I wonder what you've seen in terms of uh, you know, sort of superpowers that emerge, you know, 
in terms of compensating for those deficiencies or, or those sort of, you know, weaknesses? Well, I think I think get, getting into the whole swagger idea, and when, you know, we've been talking about swagger. I I just want to make sure that your listeners understand when I say swagger, what I mean, because when you hear the word, you often think of that showoffy, peacocky, arrogant, in your face, you know, that ex, you know that external persona crap thing, which is so not what swagger is all about. When I when I say swagger. I mean, the ability to manifest who you really are and hold on to it in the face of all of that psychological crap that's going to come for it, regardless of situation or environment. So using that as a baseline, what what I've learned to be true is that only by tapping into all of the things that that make you different, magical, special, unique, idiosyncratic, you know, n- not, not the same as, uh, you know, un- um, un, undiluted, um, unassimilated. That's actually where your true power lies. Uh, you know, on the things that perhaps you had a hate on for growing up because you didn't understand them and they made you feel different. And there were things that you didn't know how to use yet. You know, that you didn't know how to step into them because they were too big for your body or for your mind or your heart. Um, those are very often the things that, that, create success for us if when we learn how to embrace them those become the superpowers so for example if you if you um have ADHD like like I did growing up you you can't it's really hard for you to go deep on uh, on a lot of things but you you're happy to go broad on a lot of things so you become kind of you know jack of all trades master of none or you become someone who goes super myopically deep you know like super you go you find the thing that is your jam and you become the absolute expert in that and and as a result i think you you have more more empathy more more compassion for people who also have those differentiators which makes you a better leader for sure for sure um and i think you also learn how to work around what you perceive to be weaknesses and when you do that you um you strengthen so many other aspects of your, of your sensibilities, your intellect, your, your perspective, because you need to, you know, because you've got, because you recognize this, this weakness. If you're, if you're dyslexic, for example, you've got to find other ways to learn. If you, if you're going to learn, you're going to have to find other ways to do it and you're going to have to get real smart about it. And so that, that's lifelong, that's, that's lifelong, um, sort of cemented process then, because that's now the way that you do things going forward. So I, I, you know, I, I almost feel badly for those kids who were just generic mainstream. Yeah, whatever. It's all good. Cause they didn't really face the challenges. They didn't have to overcome. They didn't have to develop the grit. They didn't have to figure out the workarounds. They didn't, you know, they, it, it, those kids have a harder time succeeding later. I think when, when shit gets real. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny. You said, so my roommate and I were, were going for a drive once and we were talking about high school and he, asked me as a straight A student in high school, I said, dude, I'm Indian. That's kind of a, a given. I said, but I said, L- listen, and I was like, being a straight A student in high school is not an indication of intelligence. Any idiot can be a straight yeah. A student in high school because yeah. all you have to do game. is do what the, you play the game. Like you, you said, you listen the to the teacher, you turn yeah. your assignments in on time and you memorize a few things. Like you yeah. learn that very quickly when you, yeah. I, this was the lesson I remember when I got to Berkeley and I took an economics midterm for the first time, you know, you think you understand this, you go, you know, you solve all these problems as you do all the homework. Okay, I understand this. Then you get to the midterm and they basically ask you to apply what you've learned in a context you're completely unfamiliar with. And you realize, okay, no, wait, damn. Act- <laughs> I actually don't have a clue, Yeah, um, which is, is yeah. really. Yeah. As I said to my daughter, you, mm-hmm. in, in university is when you learn to learn. 
Yeah. That's yeah, when absolutely. you learn to learn because you, you start, you, it's, you need context, right? You have to have point of reference. You have to, it's not just rote <sighs> learning, you know? Yeah, sadly, unfortunately, even the university, you know, level, I think fails at this because that's one thing I, when I go back, I, I feel like if I went back to Berkeley now, knowing what I know from having done all the interviews I have in the show, I would probably crush it compared mm-hmm. to what I did uh, because nobody taught me how to actually study, which is, you know, one of those bizarre things that you kind of are left to figure out for yourself. And by the time you do, you're like, oh, it's graduation and my GPA sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you open up this book, you know, uh, when you uh, in the chapter that you call a case for swagger by saying fundamentally, if you believe that you're truly worthy of owning your awesomeness at the stage you're currently at, then you do nothing or no one can tell you differently in that light. It makes sense to flip the adage from fake it till you make it to feel it till you find it. Um, and I guess the, the question that arises from that is what is it that prevents people from believing that they're worthy of owning their own awesomeness? Like, where does that come from? Because every other fucking person around them is going to make it more difficult for them. It's like, it's like we have somehow, we all have forgotten that we all come from a place of, I have no idea. You know, we all start from there of a place of, I got nothing. It's the page is blank. My resume is blank. I have no skills, nothing. And we go through hell to develop all of these, these skills and, and this acumen and this experience. And the world keeps telling us we're supposed to somehow be further along than we are. I'm like, based on what? How does that the mark of someone successful? We, we, you know, this is not, it's not about complacency, you know, owning, owning where you are and being in love with where you are in your journey. It's taking a freaking breath, man. And just going, wow, I just got here. This is awesome. Let's look around here in this, you know, at this particular stage of my life and let's take a breath and let me get into it and revel in it. And so on, as opposed to going, Oh my God, I just arrived. Okay. What's next? And that's kind of what the, what the working world does to us now and, and forces us into that place of fake it till you make it because we're terrified that we will be perceived as not good enough. You know, this was, this was the thing that made me write this book. I'm, I'm, tra- I'm traveling the world with, with my company, Combustion, my training company, and I'm working with the people who are supposed to be the best of the best of the best. You know, the Googles, the, the Ubers, the, you know, all of the, the, the Silicon Valley clients and all the financial services and the tech clients and stuff. All the kids who went to Stanford and MIT and, and stuff, and they're supposed to be the best of the best. And, and, not only are they scared shitless, but their leaders are scared shitless. The, the working with the, the senior level executives at Google who are also scared shitless of being seen as less than competent, less than credible, less than powerful, less than good enough. And I was like, okay, at their core, people do not believe that they can reveal who they are and still find the success that they're dreaming of. They don't believe that they're good enough to actually achieve their dreams. And so they believe, they tell themselves this story that they have to put on this code of persona and get into this whole fake it till you make it paradigm in order to gain the credibility that is going to lead to the attention that's going to lead to their their success. And it's bullshit because as soon as they get into that cult of persona, that persona is based on an assimilated view of the world because they're looking around and saying, how can I fit in here? How can I be like everybody else here? Walk and talk and, and dress and act the same as everybody else who so all be accepted into this tribe. By definition, you're no longer standing out. 
And then you wonder why you don't get noticed. You know, it's like this whole, this, 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 this whole paradigm that people get, get trapped into. And it's just, it, it's a disaster. It's a disaster and, and a recipe for the imposter syndrome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.